You want to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. We are finishing up 1 Peter this morning, and we'll be going to 2 Peter, finishing up the two epistles of Peter. Let me read this, the uh, scripture. Um, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She was Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. Originally, when I was looking at chapter 5, I thought, well, I'll just take these few verses here and tuck them into my last message. Uh, but then I read the passage, and especially um, the portion in verse 12 kind of jumped off the pages at me where, Paul said, where Peter says that what he has written in this epistle, in these five chapters, is the true grace of God. And I thought, oh, isn't that interesting? And the reason I've taken some time, I'll take some time this morning, is because oftentimes within the church today, especially, there's some different thinking on what the true grace of God is. There's some fuzzy thinking also along that line. There's people who presume on the grace of God and saying, well, I'll just do this thing that I know God doesn't want me to do, and then the grace of God, he will forgive me later on. Now, the word is uh, in the original is charis, um, and when it's used by someone giving charis, it means uh, kindness, goodwill, favor, and um, can be used in many ways. And when it's used by the Lord giving his charis, it uh, becomes very, very important to all of us. Anyone who believes in God desires God's grace, desires his goodness, his kindness, his favor. The controversy comes on how does that take place? How does that affect us? And so I want to talk about that this morning. Some would say that this saving grace is only available to a select few, those who have been chosen before the foundation of the world. Others would say, no, it's more general than that. Uh, some would say that when God's grace comes upon you, it can't be resisted. Others would say, well, no, you, there's, there's room there. Good Christians on both sides. Loving Jesus, honoring his word, but with differing opinions. We have, for example, we have uh, John MacArthur up in uh, Paramount Grace Community in Paramount, Paramount, not Paramount, uh, Panorama City up in northern Los Angeles. He teaches uh, an idea called Lordship Salvation. In other words, to get saved, you have to accept dying to yourself and self-denial to be saved. And then we have our dear Pastor Chuck writing a book called uh, Grace Changes Everything. 
Grace changes everything. And so I wanted to review this morning what Peter has written, because he says right here in verse 12, here it is, in this chapter, in these five chapters, here is the true grace of God. Now, if you're hoping for a definitive answer that will last into eternity this morning, you're going to be sorely disappointed. A, because I am not a theologian. I'm not very deep. I'm just pretty shallow. I'm pretty, you know, what you get is what you see is what you get. And people have been arguing about the sovereignty of God and the free will of man since uh, the beginning, just a few minutes after Jesus resurrected. And so, uh, but I want to uh, present where I come from with the understanding that we'll be loving and gracious towards both the Reformed uh, point of view and those who are non-Reformed, and in all shades of gray in between, if you get what I mean. And what I want to do is my outline is based on uh, my life verse, which is 1 Corinthians 15, 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me did not prove vain, but I labored more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. So allow me to just kind of briefly review some major sections in the book of 1 Peter with using that from uh, Paul as kind of an understanding statement. So let's turn to chapter 1 just real briefly. First phrase that we see here in 1 Corinthians 15.10 is, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. In the first 12 verses, Peter hammers home over and over and over again that it was the grace of God. It was God who saved us. It's God who gives us salvation. There's nothing inherent in us that would warrant salvation. There's no resources that I have within myself that somehow I can say, I wake up this morning, I think I want to become a Christian. In and of ourselves, it's not there, guys. It's even as Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's all of God's grace. That's what he says. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Paul writes, we were what? Dead in sin and trespasses. I mean, dead. When you kick a dead man, nothing happens. He's dead. There's nothing there. Dead in sin and trespasses. He writes later on in the same chapter, but by great... Um, uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. There's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. And that's what Peter is saying here in the first 12 verses. He begins his book by saying, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And the salvation that you have, the salvation that I have is a result of his grace. I have no resources within myself. Now, there's several concepts here that we struggle with. Notice in verse 1, he says we are chosen. We are chosen. That God reached down and chose us individually, loves us individually, and chooses us. And many of our Reformed brothers would say that. Now, we don't understand why or how or what the parameters of this choosing is, but we have to trust God. We have to trust God that he is wise enough to make the right choices. 
Uh, some people would say, you know, uh, human beings haven't made a lot of right choices lately, so let's put our trust in God, that he, in those he chooses, he chose rightly. That's our reformed brothers. Those who are not reformed would say, well, look what it says in verse 2, that we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. That God looked throughout history and he could see those who would respond rightly to the gospel. And he chose them. And that's how we become chosen. That we make a free choice of our own. Our Reformed brothers would say, well, that means that salvation starts really with us because God's sitting around waiting for us to figure out who's, who's going to choose them and then he chose, choose, chooses them. And so we have this back and forth. Now, we have to understand that God knows everything. Isn't that true? It's called the omniscience of God. He knows everything. And he bases his choices and what he does based on his goodwill and his love, but also that he knows everything. He's not throwing darts in the dark hoping to hit something, but it included all of that which he does. Now, you're saying, well, Pastor Neil, where do you come down on this? Well, without being a great theologian, I know that the Bible tells us that God is not wishing, not willing or wishing for any to perish, but that all would come to repentance. You can't fudge that verse. That's what the verse says. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, it's evident that not all come to repentance. Isn't that evident? That's very evident. So what does that mean? That means somehow in the mystery of God, in his choosing us and his foreknowledge, that there's some amount of responsibility on each person how to respond to the grace of God. Look with me at the verses 1 through 12. We'll just move really quickly through this. So we see you are chosen, but according to the foreknowledge of God. Now notice in verse 2, he says, the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. The Holy Spirit. We don't sanctify ourselves. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 2. Grace and peace came about through the work of Jesus Christ. Verse 3 He's caused us to be born again. Who caused us to be born again? He did through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 4, we have received an inheritance. Now, I don't know about you, but inheritance is you just receive it. Amen? You don't work for it. You receive, we received an inheritance. And verse 5, we're protected by the power of God. We're protected. We don't protect ourselves. We're protected by the power of the Holy Spirit upon us. Look at the results in verses 6, 7, 8, and 9. We greatly rejoice. Verse 7, we, the experiences that we go through make us more like Jesus. Verse 8, we love him. We believe in him, even though we haven't seen him, and we're filled with joy. And one day in verse 9, that salvation will become evident when we find ourselves in heaven. Look at verses 10 through 12. How did this come about? It came about because it was prophesied through the Hebrew scriptures. 
It's of special interest to the prophets and the angels. Verses 10 through 12. It's only for New Testament believers, this salvation we have. And verses 11 through 12. It came about, what we have, came about through the sufferings of Jesus Christ and the preaching of the gospel. (laughs) It's all of grace. Paul said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. God did it. God did it. Okay. Let's look at the second phrase of, uh, that's found in 1 Corinthians 15.10. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Paul is saying, and it almost seems like a slight contradiction. Wait a minute, you just said it was all of God's grace. But then he says, but, 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 and even his grace word did not prove vain. Now that word is uh, kinos, the Greek word, and it means empty, without effect. All that the Lord did, it did not, it did not have not effect, excuse me. It, it, it didn't just kind of have no effect on me. But I labored. Now why this contrast? I believe that Paul is saying that when God's grace comes on you, it could, there's a possibility that you could not respond to it. And it could just turn out to be, "Mm, whatever, okay. Thanks a lot, but no thanks. Now why do I say that? A couple of passages you might want to look at. Matthew chapter 23. Jesus is looking at Jerusalem. He's talking about the people of God. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets, stones those who were sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. That's Jesus, who wanted to gather the people of Israel under his wings like a hen, her chicks, and you were unwilling. Did Jesus show the grace of God to the people of Israel? <laughs> Did he ever? There's another passage in Acts chapter 7. Stephen the apostle is preaching, is standing before the court of the Sanhedrin, preaching to the leaders of Israel. And he says this, he concludes his sermon just before they stone him to death. <laughs> they didn't respond really well to his message. And he says in verse 51, you men, these are the leaders, these are the spiritual leaders of Israel, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, always resisting the Holy Spirit. Always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. The Holy Spirit came upon them, and they said, no, no. Uh, the other passage is 1 Corinthians chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let me read that passage. Verse 20, 520, 2 Corinthians 520. Here is Paul saying, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. Okay? As though God were making an appeal through us. God is speaking through us. Isn't that what he's saying? Yes. 
we beg you on behalf of Christ, on the behalf of Jesus, to be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. Then verse 21, he says, why? Because he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. He's begging people to respond to God and the gospel through Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing, amen? Look at verse 6, chapter 1, verse 6. Chapter 6, verse 1. And, we, and working together with him, we also urge you, here it is, not to receive the grace of God in vain. He's saying, when it comes upon you, respond to it. Look at what he says in verse 2. For he says, at this acceptable time, I listened to you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, the acceptable time, behold, now is the day of salvation. He's saying, I beg you, when the grace of God comes on you, don't let it be in vain, don't let it be empty, but you have a responsibility to respond to it. You have a responsibility to respond to it. Now there's two perspectives on this important issue. The Reformed position would say that grace is needed to break through to us. We are so dead in sin and trespasses that the grace of God must break through. It must convert us first so that we, so that we can repent and receive Jesus Christ. We are so dead in sin, as Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says, that the, the grace of God must break through and convert us so that we can repent and receive Christ. Non-reformed position says that we're convicted by the Holy Spirit and we respond to his grace. Theologians said God's grace is persuasive but not coercive. See the difference there? Now our reformed brothers and sisters would say that was that God's grace is irresistible. When his saving grace comes upon you, it's irresistible. You can't resist it. The non-reformed position would say that God's grace is very, very persuasive, but it doesn't, it's not coercive. It doesn't force us to love God. Now, in this book, in a major portions of his book, Peter, over and over again, exhorts the folks not to let this grace be in vain in their lives. Look what he does. Chapter 1, verses 13 through 25, he gives general instructions for the Christians. He tells them, you need to be holy, you need to conduct yourself in fear, and you need to love one another. Chapters 2, verses 1 through 10, he talks about how we're not to allow these characteristics of the unsaved to drift back into our life. Remember that? Deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. He talked about that. Verses 2, chapter 2, verse 11 through chapter 3, verse 7, he talks about how we have responsibilities towards unbelievers, towards our government, towards our employers, towards our mates. Chapter 3, verse 8 through 419, he talks about Christian suffering. And then chapter 5 talks about doing what is right in light of suffering as a Christian. True grace of God is what God has done and how we have a responsibility 
to not allow his grace to be in vain in our life. We need to respond. The grace of God doesn't passively carry us along, but we have to actively respond to the grace that God gives us through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. The last phrase found in 1 Corinthians 15.10 is, Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. By the grace of God I am what I am, Paul says, and his grace towards me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Now Paul seems to, he makes this great case that it's possible that the grace of God could be in vain, but then he closes this verse by saying, but wait, wait, <laughs> well, wait guys, yet not I, but it was all the grace of God <laughs> within me. Peter does the same thing in chapter 3, verse 18, where he says, right in the middle of his exposition of all the things that he's saying, he says, "Uh, but wait, it was Christ who died for sins. It's Jesus who did it all. You're saying, wait wait a minute, wait a minute. Are these guys trying to confuse me? What is it? Is it all the grace or there's human responsibility? And the answer to that is yes. (laughs) Yes. That's the answer, Yes. I know that there's nothing good in me. You know that too, don't you? Don't you know? You didn't save yourself. It wasn't you. You didn't wake up one morning and decide, you know, I feel like drawing near to God. You know it was the Holy Spirit speaking to you. You know it's not of you. You have no resources within yourself to save yourself. Even as Paul said, you were dead in sin and trespasses. It was all his grace. But yet we know, we know that he doesn't force us to love him. How can you force someone to love you? It's impossible. Do we understand it all? No. And if anybody tells you that they've got the package, they've got it all together, they're wrong. (laughs) This subject will not be resolved in this age. Will not. They've been trying with better minds than you have and certainly that I have to try and resolve the sovereignty of God and the free will of man for ages. And we must allow God to be God. It says in 1 Corinthians 13, what? For now we see through what? A glass darkly. Uh, We see some, yeah, okay, yes, it's all of grace and yes, I... I need to respond to his grace. But how does that all work? Jesus will have a big seminar the first day we get there. (laughs) And he'll explain it all. And we'll go out for coffee and donuts and think, yeah, I see it. But right now, it's not coming all together. Now, as I was working on this message, a uh, fellow came in the office and he had gone to the School of Ministry at Costa Mesa and he, uh, he had some books that he wanted to donate to the library. And it was really nice. Thank you very much. And in that book, there was a little booklet from Pastor Chuck on this very subject. And Nancy said, hey, Neil, you might want to look at this. And I thought, oh, I just... And he outlines both sides 
reform, non-reform, and various shades of gray. There's all kinds of them. And then the last page, uh, he has a really interesting perspective on this. This is from Pastor Chuck Smith. Okay? Now, I love Pastor Chuck. Because whenever there's a controversy in the church, I can always find Pastor Chuck. Now, you might argue with me, but most of you are not going to argue with Pastor Chuck. (laughs) And he's talking about this whole issue. Let me read a couple of paragraphs. Would you allow me to do that? Okay, this is from our pastor. Speaking on this reformed, non-reformed position, he says... It is not easy to maintain the unity of spirit among us on on this matter. It seems that the sovereignty of God and human responsibility are two parallel lines that do not seem to intersect within our own finite minds. God's ways are past finding out, Romans 11.33. And the Bible warns us not to lean on our own understanding, Proverbs 3.5. To say, now I'm going to read this twice. To say what God says in the Bible, no more, no less, is not always easy, comfortable, or completely understandable. Let me read that again. To say what God says in the Bible, no more, no less, is not always easy, comfortable, or completely understandable. But Scripture tells us that the wisdom from above will first be loving, kind towards all, seeking the unity of the believers, not trying to find ways to divide and separate from one another. May God help us to love each other, to be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving each other as Jesus Christ has forgiven us, Ephesians 4.32. In the difficult, in these difficult doctrinal matters, May we have the gracious attitude and humble hearts desiring most of all to please him, calling us to serve him in the body of Christ. Discussions, yes. Disagreements, yes. Division, no. Jesus said, by the fruit you shall know them. When a particular position on the scriptures causes one to become argumentative, legalistic, and divisive, I question the validity of that position. I seek to embrace those things that tend to make me more loving and kind, more forgiving and merciful. I know then that I am becoming more like my Lord. If you have come to a strong personal conviction on one side of of this doctrinal issue... Please grant us the privilege of first seeing how it has helped you become more Christ-like in your nature. And then we will judge whether we need to come to that same persuasion. Let us always be certain to look at the fruit of the teaching. Seek those things that produce a loving nature of Jesus in our lives. I would rather have the wrong facts and the right attitude, speaking on this issue, than having the right facts and the wrong attitude. God can change my understanding of the facts in a moment, but it often takes a lifetime 
to affect the change of my attitude. Yours in love, Pastor Chuck. Now, I rejoice in many of what God is doing in many of the Reformed churches. The new, many of the new cutting-edge pastors who are doing really definitive work in the gospel are Reformed brothers and sisters. Many of the new churches, the new vibrant churches, are pastored by Reformed pastors. I applaud them. I encourage them. I love them. Without going down the same road, they're going down. Now, we always want to be very careful, however, because church history is littered with little groups that went too far this way or too far that way, and they ended up in the wilderness not doing what God wanted them to do, which is to love people and to reach the lost for Christ. May God help us not to be either too far this way or too far that way, but carefully consider what our dear pastor has said to us concerning this issue. Now, I have friends who are reformed in their theology in this issue. It makes no difference to me. I'm not there. I'm not a reformed pastor. That's not my teaching position. Certainly I believe in the sovereignty of God, but certainly I know that I have a responsibility to respond to the grace of God when it comes in my life. I don't put them down, and I would hope that they, those of us who are in Calvary would not be put down by our reformed brothers and sisters, even as Pastor Chuck says. Discussions, sure. Disagreements, why not? Division, never, never. May we be careful to consider the words from our dear pastor and the words of the scriptures to preach the word and nothing more. And can we all figure it out? Mm, Probably not, but that's okay. We're all going to heaven, amen? Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for uh, the scriptures that we find this morning in the book of 1 Peter. We're thankful that you give us grace and that grace changes everything. It changes everything because apart from the grace of God, I wouldn't be here and neither would any, any of our brothers and sisters May that truth permeate our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.